seems we practice a lot of the time, it's just is coming up to these places where we think we know who we are, we think we know what we're not, we think we know what we never can be, and we recognize, oh, this is just uh, worry. Mm. This is just uh, pride. Uh, this is just fear. <laughs> yeah. And you get to see through the, the de- self-definitions as what are they based on? Needing to be, thinking one is, thinking one isn't. And of course it's a (coughs) tremendous current of this uh, self-definition, trying to know oneself. Particularly when you're, you know, cultivating a path which seems to mean you're going to go somewhere or be something. And so so one part of you is kind of figuring, is this right? Am I doing all right? Am I any better? Am I wiser? Am I purer? Am I more mindful? Am I more freer? Am I clearer? Am I stronger? Am I smarter? How am I? You know, it gets quite obsessive sometimes. You know. <coughs> it's kind of picking away at oneself. Or somebody else tell me who I am, what I am, how I am, how I'm not. Give me a good ticking off, will you? <laughs> you know, really lay into me. Be strong. Or, or give me a hug. Or like me or kick me around or something, you know, some way to know who we are. And this is tremendous uh, push. Uh, how could, and you think, how could you know who you are? How could you know how you are? How could you know that? <coughs> Without, it's not a thought, it's not a mood, not a reaction. Not a judgment, not a perception that's imposed by other people. What what have you got left? (laughs) Clarity. Knowing that whatever it is, it's not that. (laughs) And being clear about that. I was reading a story the other day from the Native American tradition of these uh, two to uh, friends, people who decided they were friends early in life. And uh, one of them, he was a great healer. And uh, so he had this power to heal. And so that a person, somebody got sick, or even to the point of dying, they'd put, him, put this man, woman, down on the ground, and this man would, would summon up this tremendous healing energy. And the way he did it was he danced around them, stamped his feet and kicked up dust and danced around them and beat these gourds. And he worked by this kind of tremendous uh, shamanical power. He'd do this for hours on end. Some part of him would, would elevate, would come to the lofty realms where the great spirits live and he'd bring down his healing energy to, to heal whoever was there. <coughs> he had this tremendous power to do so. <coughs> His friend didn't have this power. So the healer thought, well, I, I, I need to, I'm going to protect my friend. You know, make this tremendous determination to protect my friend. Um, so every night, I'm going to keep the evil spirits away from his house. I dance around his house every night. He did this year after year, day after day, every night, because <coughs> of his tremendous devotion and love for his friend. When he's getting older, he started to worry a bit, because he was thinking, you know, 
I'm getting old, I don't know if my powers are going to, my powers are going to wane. I'm not going to be able to do this much longer, you know. I've got to also recognize I've got to give up uh, even this healing power. So he's looking, and then perhaps, you know, my friend, when I can't do this for him, he won't, he won't love me anymore, you know, he won't respect me or like me anymore. <coughs> so he's looking a bit sad, and his friend said to him, what, what's the matter? So he said, well, you know, I'm just worried about, you know, I might not be able to protect you and heal you, and I, I might lose your friendship. And his friend looked at him and said, well, how could, how could you lose my friendship? I mean, you've been making this row around my house every night, <laughs> year after year, and I've never complained once. <laughs> Shows you how much I love you. <laughs> so, <laughs> I think what comes to me out of that story is not that perhaps they needed a bit of communication skills, might have been useful, but <laughs> being men, you know, we didn't need to talk about these things. <laughs> and not even that they had this tremendous love, but also that there's so much unknown, you know and there's so much they didn't know and uh, why were they friends in the first place you know it wasn't friends because this guy was a healer uh, you know there's something beyond that that uh, was that was their source of their tremendous uh, uh, warmth and I think it's true that for all of us um, we always kind of imagine many people like us because we're funny or like us because we're useful or we're, we're accepted because we're polite or we're, we're welcomed in because we can do things or something. And uh, so we, we try to get more of this going or keep it going, you know, and never show the sides we were a bit grumpy or <coughs> useless or feeble, <coughs> you know, not so pure. And it comes as a, often a revelation in, in community life that actually, you know, no, all that stuff you were doing to, to, to prove you're acceptable was a bit of a nuisance, really. <laughs> you know, I wish you could have just a bit more quiet and let, you know, let us just receive us a bit better. You know, the love's already there. <laughs> it's quite a natural thing for human beings, you know. Not, it's, it's unconditioned. You don't have to. It's not because of something. It's because, you know, if it's because, because the nature of the heart is to, is to radiate and if we could just be quiet enough to receive it <laughs> and uh, clear enough to, to uh, uh, let it happen, you know. Uh, and yet often we think we've got to do something to show that we're loving, you know. Uh, and yet there's a huge amount of this thing which is unfathomable, undefined, unconditioned, uncreated, um, that we don't really trust in our manifestations, or in our other people, or in ourselves. And I think this particular case in the spiritual path, where you know, there's some sense of well, you're really not really all right. Otherwise, there wouldn't be anything to do, would there? So, you know, probably you've got a few bits missing, or not so good. So you should do something in order to get a bit better. You know, it sounds reasonable. And there's a truth in that, otherwise there wouldn't be a path. There's certainly things we train and practice in, there's things to be directed to. And in, in Buddhism there's plenty of that. 
<coughs> and yet this is what we call the conditioned, conventional conditioned aspects of practice, you know, the conditioned truth. You know. But you can also uh, recognize that um, this is my own experience, the more one uh, just rests upon conditioned truth, that is, uh, that which we can see, that which we can remember, that which we can think, that which we can manifest, we get a bit frantic in trying to, you know, accumulate all the good qualities and, and stuff them in there. You know, could be more mindful, more concentrated, more vigorous, more courageous, more faith, more trust, more giving, more generous, and you, get, you stuff all this stuff in from the ideas bank, you know, it's all good stuff. And there's a point in which you actually wait a minute, no, no, this isn't, this is just stressful, this is um, accumulative, it's not leading to lessening, it's not leading to letting go, it's leading to accumulation. And uh, where does it come from? Where where does the motivation coming from? Hmm. Is it from a kind of fundamental fear or anxiety or insecurity that's just driving us? Or a guilt thing going? Or a some basic assumption that one is fundamentally wrong or flawed or stupid or, you know, or you remember all the bad things you've done in your life or you remember all the people who didn't like you and you don't actually notice the rest of it. <coughs> so it's not that, the, that these, obviously, I'm not going to be saying the, that these practices are of no avail or no purpose, but there's a sense of which the moderation of them, the careful understanding of how the conditioned works with the unconditioned in all aspects of the, of the practice. The unconditioned is that which you don't really know or see or manifests. It's a quietness, a stillness, an openness, an unknowingness. Hmm. But what it does is, is in, it means that we are no longer clinging to the, to the condition, clinging to the conventions, clinging to the practices. We use them and we contemplate this came out of this, it gives these results, this is the, this is the cause, this is the result, it's like that, and this is the effects. Mm. Rather than, I am this, I should be that, I'm going to do this, in order I will be that, which is when you're clinging to the conditions. <coughs> so, if we recognize in the Buddha's first sermon, he, he was talking about this uh, quality of vidya, chakung, jnana, aloka, panya, clarity, seeing, light, uh, knowledge, uh, understanding or discernment. Use this string of, of uh, words to somehow summon up uh, uh, the experience of revelation, we might say experience of, of revealing, of seeing through, of reviewing the conditioned from an unconditioned perspective. One sees it clearly, one sees it knowingly. There is light, there is dawning, uh, there is knowledge, there is discernment and so forth. <coughs> and what does one see? One sees this is suffering. This is, uh, this is suffering, this is uh, aging is suffering, uh, birth is suffering, death is stressful, and so forth, however you want to translate these terms. Basically, one seeing into the 
stressful or unsatisfactory or problematic um, or um, uncompleted or vulnerable experience. Mm. One is seeing it as such. So, and he's saying right at this point, when you even you see the, the the painful or the unresolved or the unfulfilled as it is, that is already a moment of enlightenment, a moment of of uh, vidya, clarity, aloka, light, and so forth. That already. So you're not seeing some kind of wonderful, luminous state. You're seeing the uh, troubled, the perturbed, the vulnerable, the afflicted. Oh, it's like that. Hmm. This is, so, in a way, this is quite <coughs> remarkable and worthy of considering. Because uh, I suppose most of us would imagine we will see something, you know, um, you know some brilliant, some, something or the other, you know, something, a sign. Give me a sign. And it's true that this same refrain, this sense of clarity and wisdom and knowledge and so forth, pertains to the both the first noble truth, the sense of stress or troubledness, the second noble truth, one sees, one, sees, one has insight into the, how that rises up, <coughs> how that's generated, one sees how it ceases, and one sees the path. You don't see the seeing. You don't see the unconditioned, you don't see the liberation. You see a path, uh, you see how things end, you see how things arise, you see the problematic. You don't see the liberated. You don't see it, so how do you know it? (laughs) Hmm. <coughs> Another useful, very <coughs> map of find of of the process of of uh, practice over over years. In, in you know, this isn't just in the moment. Over years, is um, we start out with something like um, unknowing. Unknowing ignorance, that is one's kind of confused, perturbed, a bit manic here and there, crazy, reckless, uh, depressed or whatever, but you don't really recognize it, you're just out there flinging it around, (laughs) doing it, you know, thrashing and weaving and ducking and blaming and accusing and and dumping and forgetting and drinking it away, kind of thing. This is your first state, the kind of uh, unknowing ignorance, you don't even really know it's there. Yeah. And uh, then, as you as you begin to something begins to stir, and you come to a state of knowing ignorance. That is, oh my goodness, oh god, oh boy, wow, this is a mess. You know what's happening? Uh, that was a bit rough, wasn't it? Uh, it reminds me of <clears throat> this is your kind of awakening, first awakening moment, if you like. It reminds me of one of Ivers old saying, "I didn't realize I was depressed until I became a Buddhist." <laughs> This is the moment when you wake up with a hangover, you know, as it were, hangover of life, and you think, hey, you know, things are not right. And then there's uh, so it's the second stage, and there's, if you like, there's uh, knowing, 
uh, clarity. That as you begin, hey, this is about precepts, it's about morality, it's about mindfulness, it's about meditation, it's about generosity, it's about, yeah, those things, about serenity, peacefulness, that's, that's what it is, that's it, I got it. Let's do those things, do it, get out there and do it, you know, and that's it, isn't it? And you know it. And this is, and then the, yeah, you know this one? That's it, yeah, that should be it, right. Just meditate, that's it. You know? <laughs> and the fourth is um, unknowing clarity. <laughs> Which is when you, you don't know, actually. You don't bother to know, you're not troubled, you're not, you, just, you don't bother with that particular um, reference. <coughs> And it seems that the, the, they're all crucial stages, of course. But, uh, you know, we start with, we look at uh, the uh, knowing one's ignorance, or knowing ignorance. <coughs> yeah. So, they, you know, you see all these things in yourself. And so, then, you know, so the, well, how does a... How do you how do you come from what is it that that is waking you up? How did you get to know that? How did you get to know you were ignorant? How did you get to know there was defilement? How did you get to know there was this kind of underlying uh, passions or grief or rage or whatever it is? What woke you up? Yeah. I mean, just one day myself, I think. <coughs> You know, one day I went to a meditation class and I sat there and I tried to do the meditation for 15 minutes and all I had to do was breathe in and out and watch it and I don't think I breathed, got a single breath. I thought, well, this is it, isn't it? <laughs> you know, I could actually, just for the very, every kind of a moment of that, something said, something, be able to witness, this is my mind running around, you know. I never bothered to, to actually have a still point to, to notice how how the mind is as normally in there doing it. And you've got the encouragement to just contemplate, just to be with <coughs> how it is. And using a system like mindfulness of breathing to give yourself a kind of vantage point. If you don't really get the vantage point exactly, still there's an inclination. Hmm? So something, you know, some reminder causes a kind of inclination to occur, and it's like a, a, an enlargement, if you like, of one's vision. Instead of just being in there in the thoughts and reacting to them, thinking them, thinking, oh, stop thinking about that, I'll think something, oh, this is the right, that's wrong, well, I should do this, I should do that. There's something just got, not actually in that, but a much large, a larger sense opens up. You think, most of my, mad, mind, is, most of my mind is madness, you know. This is, the, if you like, the first noble truth. <coughs> and one might say, well, it was that teacher who turned me on. You might say it was mindfulness of breathing that did it. But actually, those may have been catalysts that caused that, or offered that opportunity of opening to some larger sense. So in a way, 
I like to suggest that the the uh, awakening is kind of triggered by something that allows us to stop being who we are for a moment, being a normal patterns for a moment, something that gives us the encouragement to stop being in our trip, being in our script for a moment. It's good script, bad script, you know, whatever, incoherent script, just a brilliant script, just that moment to offer so you don't have to be in this. Just sort of understand script. Give yourself that opportunity. So, in a way, one isn't actually generating anything, but somehow in that very moment, at least in my experience, there is a kind of a revelation of a larger sense one can never really describe adequately that allows a kind of a seeing of the way things are. I would call this some kind of touch of the unconditioned. Because it's not, I can never put it in words, it's not a thing, it's not an idea, it's not a belief, it's not an emotion, it's, not a, it's just a, something opens up. And you see the larger sense, you see yourself in a much larger sense. <coughs> and then what is it that, so in my own life, what is it that uh, maybe take up ordination, just sitting in a, in a cafe in Thailand and seeing Buddhist monks walking down the road and going for alms early in the morning barefoot with their bowls and the sun rising behind them. So what that, you know, just, who are these guys? What are they doing? They're walking down the road. Hmm. But somehow, you know, there's a sense in which it awoke or it touched into a much larger sense because these were people who at that moment were presenting an image of uh, trust and simplicity, you know, not having anything apart from an empty bowl, bare feet. And they were just walking along a road in a town, you know, open, unsheltered. They're thinking, oh yeah, that, that feels larger than being cluttered and contained and destined and destinations and possibilities and insurance and all that kind of stuff. There feels much more space in that. It seems this is the kind, these are the kind of things that I really uh, find myself remembering many times, actually. Recollecting, not blazing truths, but simple, mysterious openings. It's almost like the touch of the unconditioned. It's, it's kind of sounds a bit theistic, doesn't it? Like an act of grace. And I'm not going to quarrel with that with people who, who find theism inspiring. But... <clears throat> I don't know where it comes from. Uh, but it seems to me that the, the, the really uh, most profound experiences, actually, they all come out of nowhere like that. It's not the truths that we've read in the book that we're aiming for, you know. How do I get to this state? You work towards getting to it, you know. 
which is what I did in my first few years. So I was following a system which had a very, very explicit um, series of instructions, very precise, very explicit, and very explicit descriptions of the landscape. You know, you get to this state, and there were these nine of these stages, and you get to these stages, and you know, that was it, kind of thing. So, okay, follow this, do that. So after a while, I could actually, you know, start to get to these stages, or seemingly. Um, You know, uh, and... uh, But I I recognize it's because I was looking for them. (laughs) (coughs) (coughs) Because in terms of the simplicity of, of whether one was any more peaceful... Uh, or relaxed or stress-free certainly uh, wasn't you know, on a fundamental level. These are the things you had to get to. You got to them. It was like you, you, know, you climbed up something. You were hanging on to your, your level. And then you'd hold it for as long as you could. And then you kind of eventually sort of weaken and slip down the face of the mountain, as it were. As these may have been true or not true, but they were very much conditioned. Um, Conditioned experiences. <clears throat> and the sense of, um, to me, the, 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 the real inspiration that, that continues is just as in that first rather pathetic meditation experience, the, the moment that allows one to not be who one thinks or imagines one is or should be or shouldn't be or other people you think other people think you are or whatever, you know. So, although there there is these... um, um, conditioned structures that we can use essentially they are there it seems to me to, to provide us with the kind of holding power and stopping power and attention power to stop being who we think ourselves or feel ourselves or remember ourselves or fear ourselves or w- beat ourselves or praise ourselves into. <laughs> and it's very clear that in the, in the Buddhist path and the Buddha's own language is, is unrelenting in its use of these impersonals. You know, there is wisdom, there is truth. It is liberated. You know? um, he, knows, he knows it is liberated. You know? <laughs> uh, uh. There is, there is suffering, there is a cessation of it. It's all very much um, in this, this kind of, <coughs> there's nobody there with it. So it kind of remains unfathomable. Now I know this is, is something that t- takes a bit of doing because uh, you know, there's this tremendous bhava, what's called bhava, the becoming instinct, which is the identification instinct that really keeps identifying with rather unhelpful, rather miserable um, experiences, and would like to identify with something a little more, you know, uplifting and uh, positive and strong and so forth. 
Um, and it's not to say that it shouldn't be the positive or the strong, but identifying with it is quite a, quite a fee to pay. <laughs> I remember when I <coughs> first um, came to live in Britain, then I'd been practicing in a monastery in central Thailand, which is like thousands of other monasteries in Thailand. Uh, that's the make a generalization. I've been to thousands of other monasteries, but it was a pretty much okay. It was, it was considered quite, quite well. There was a meditation section. People did practice. The abbot was quite keen and vigorous. The vinaya was of a standard which is often normal in Thailand, which is people, monks, use money, um, they smoke cigarettes, they, um, you know, they kind of live decent lives, if you see what I mean, and nobody killing or stealing. But it's not actually the, the pure uh, standards of the vinaya. So uh, this is where I was training, so I didn't actually have this kind of training. So... Ajahn Chah's tradition, Ajahn Chah's lineage was much stricter. So this was the big thing when I came to England. People were kind of saying, you know, strict. Ajahn Chah's really strict. So I got this perception: she's strict, you know, strong, severe, austere, strict. Doesn't just you know doesn't muck around. So this is the dominant perception that, that was um, uh, created for me in my mind. And the feeling was, you know, if you want to come up to scratch, you better be strict, severe tough, unyielding kind of thing. You know, this kind of flim, flimsy, flim-flam uh, um, uh, <coughs> mainstream Buddhism stuff. This is, this, is the, this is the crack commando court you're in now. Okay, right, so toughen up, you know. We don't, we don't keep sugar more than seven days, you know. We don't, right, okay, we don't do that. We don't. So I did all these very tough practices sort of get toughened up to so, you know, do something tough to get yourself in shape with everybody else. Actually nobody else was doing these tough practices. <laughs> <coughs> and um, actually then I met Ajahn Chah, he came to England and I don't know, whether he's strict or not, he's tough or not. Main thing about him was he was uh, the, the thing I noticed about him really was uh, is unfathomable. That was the only thing. <coughs> and peaceful, at peace with himself. So sometimes he'd be very humorous. Other times it's like just. Disappear. He's obviously in a thump. Gone. Or somewhere. But not absent, but just not manifesting anything. <coughs> and I noticed he used to spend a lot of time answering people's questions. <coughs> and that every question that was asked is like you heard this question coming out of somebody's mouth and you saw it kind of moving through the air and you saw it disappear and then he smiled and he said something to the person which was often nothing about the question <laughs> oh that's funny because he didn't in other words he didn't react to the words so oh well he shouldn't he just heard the words 
heard where they were and heard where they were coming from and talked. Didn't bother with what the person was jabbering on about, but talked to the person. Like, oh, you need to relax a bit more. <laughs> you know, someone come with some amazingly complicated uh, question on Sutta's Rabhidharma, and you go, oh, too much thinking is not good for you. You know, <laughs> so he, and so you know what he wasn't actually relying on on the wasn't even referring to the manifest in its obvious the most obvious uh, examples. This is what I noticed about him, actually. And ever since it's been quite interesting because I only spent a month or so with him and then you get I'd meet other senior monks who knew Ajahn Chah so Ajahn Chah was whoa, he was really strict. You know, and he gave me some anecdote about Ajahn Chah being strict. Wow, Ajahn Chah's really strict. And <clears throat> And Charles really tough, you know, he could do this and he could sit solid for 12 hours and think, wow, Ajahn Charles, and he'd give me some aid, and think, wow, Ajahn Charles really solid. And you meet some other monks, it's Ajahn Charles really funny. And he give you some story about Ajahn Charles, tell me some really funny story, you know, really witty or funny. Ajahn Charles really loving, you know. You know, a story where he kind of comforted somebody or, you know, Ajahn Charles really loving. Ajahn Charles really hard working, you yeah. know. Ajahn Chah was really laid back. <laughs> you know, well, these are all the things we can see. And it seems that in a way that, that, that all these... And Ajahn Chah was actually... Some it wasn't so good. Ajahn Chah could be a bit grumpy and irritable at times. And Ajahn Chah used to have a quiet smoke now and then. And Ajahn Chah used to have a fascination with noodles. And Ajahn Chah was someone would say rather coarse, rude things. You know, some of us weren't so nice. But some of the fact that, that, you see, all these things are like, you know, the manifestations. And the fact that there were so many of them seemed to indicate, not this, not this, not, not, no, 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 no. And how do you handle, how do you have all that unless you're not any of it, you know? And I see that in, in uh, you know, many other folks as well. Uh, we tend to have a little less, and most of our stuff is not so, so uh, wonderful. And Ajahn Chah's stuff was quite wonderful. But, you, you know, you hear the anxiety, and you hear the fears, and you hear the irritations. And oh, this, this is a really fine person, actually. <coughs> Why doesn't she see it? Why doesn't he see it? Hmm. Hmm. And in my and uh, my strict is the way kind of thing, you've got to be strict, you've got to be severe. I remember I went up to start this monastery up in Northumberland, so this is better make it really good, you know, because it's the first time, and it's a new place, so you really got to make so really be very strict and very severe is the kind of feeling of it. So I had a very strict and severe time up there. Yeah. And we, we we had this one meal a day, and uh, the Anagarika would chop it all up into one heap, so it wasn't all different dishes. And then, uh, apart from that, I stopped drinking any form of tea or caffeine, which I'm pretty fond of to keep going. It's very hard work; nothing, no tonics to lift one up. And then, towards the end of the vasa, I thought, well, just not lie down at night, and also fast, you know. 
In fact, why breathe? You know? <laughs> so I thought, well, that's, that's not bad for starters, is it? You know, done pretty good. And then uh, and actually you, you find that people thought it was rather stupid, actually. <laughs> and even, you know, taking years to, to try, and, try and erase the reputation of being some kind of brutal a pagan um, and, uh, tyrant. <laughs> and yeah, you know, the whole motivation was to try to be what one was thought one, other people wanted you to be. And it just, uh, uh, you know, shows how even doing what you think the right things are, because these are all the things that Ajahn Chah had done, and even, you know, recommended and even kind of, uh, you know, presented in his monasteries, or told people they've got to do. Even doing all the right things, all the right conditioned things, isn't necessarily going to get the right results. Because, uh, you know, it wasn't really coming from, in my mind, from a place of, of, of unknowing. Of, well, you know, some, something feels, something starts to arise, and you just put that aside. You're not with that anymore. But coming from a place of trying to be something. And I think we must be very careful with that. <coughs> you end up cramming. <clears throat> I used to be very so kind of driven by these uh, things I would just cram all sorts of resolutions every vasa you know stop reading stop talking um, you know only have four hours sleep and stuff like this so you really and then the next day I'd make another resolution to kind of you know ratchet it up a bit you know, I had to, after I had to resolve not to make any more resolutions because it was just getting so, one's day was so busy um, keeping all this stuff going that, that there wasn't any time left to actually, you know, witness anything because you, you just crammed it all full of, of apparently, you know, one might have been good for a little while. You know. So I, th- I think, in brief, what the this sense of, of uh, trusting uh, the unconditioned is to say, you know, we use the conditioned aspects of the path for a place of balance, not from a place of filling oneself up. And I think, the, to my mind, the, the, what becomes evident in this transformative process is how you begin to recognize that knowing things is only one aspect of what the mind does. You know, be mindful, you know, have samadhi, you know, renunciation, you know, be more kind, you know these ideas, but... The other thing it does, it drives. The mind drives. It pushes. It pushes. And there's a skillful pushing, and there's a point when pushing becomes driven. You're no longer actually in charge of or pushing or letting that push come from a natural growth point. Rather, something is, is arising in you, and you're feeling that sense of this is happening. There is this sense of dispassion or this sense of cl- let's clean out, you know, that's arising. Instead, one is actually doing it, you know, I, I should be more like this. So you're imposing ra- the truth rather than letting truth grow. And it's, it's when the, the very push of one's pack practice is more, you know, driven by perceptions, ideas, um, persuasions, fears. Um, and so forth, rather than growing, you know, rather like the, the drive that a seed, that a tip of a plant has, 
as it moves up to the sky. It just senses the lights up there and keeps going. I think that to me that's a really useful metaphor because true growth, in a way, is undriven. It pushes, but it's not driven. It's like the like water flowing downhill. It knows, it senses, this is the right way, and it moves that way. And I, to my mind, this is how one knows the unknow- uh, is able to, to have unknowing clarity. The clarity is there because one senses the absence of drive. Not stale, not flaccid, not dull, not kind of dampened down. It's not, you know, like a negative drive or a repressed drive, but the sense of, of there's room, there's, not, there's buoyancy, there's not the driven quality to it. And it's that, in fact, to me, it's that very absence of, of, the, of drivenness that is the, the triggering point of, of awakening. You stop having to be who you are. The drive to be who you are stops for a moment. You're given the occasion. You're let off. <laughs> having to keep your script going. You know? So for that moment, there's a... Oh. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to figure it. You don't have to develop it. It's... And in that, it's not, you know, so when in the first moments of, of what I would call the enlightenment process, you wake, you can see there's plenty of drives going on, but one drive has stopped, which is the drive to be. Or, you know, an aspect of that has stopped. So you begin to see all this stuff, this movement, these habits, these compulsions. Yeah? And as, you, as the path, as you keep in touch with that, the undriven, is witnessing or holding the driven, then uh, it's, it's gradually the case is that those drives begin to quieten and be more optional. You know, they're, they're no longer drives, they are possibilities. They are things we can pick up. So there's freedom there. <coughs> I say it's not about uh, action, it's not about inaction. Uh, one of the famous sayings of, of Ajahn Chah was his letter, very brief. He was not a great uh, chronicler or, or letter, letter writer. Letter to Ajahn Sumato when Ajahn Sumato was in Britain. And this is written about 78. I remember I was it with Ajahn Sumato when he got this little letter. Very short. And he said, um, now I've got it exactly right, but... Um, uh, any feelings you have of love or hate for anything, these will be your aids and partners in developing paramita or transcendent virtue. So, any feelings you have of positive inclination or negative inclination, love or hate for anything, these will be your aids and partners in developing paramita, developing transcendent virtue. The Buddha's Dharma is not in going forward nor in going back nor in standing still. This Sumedho is your place of non-abiding. So it's not the, the, the drive that pushes forward, it's not the drive that, that pushes back, tries to get, I wish I wasn't here, stop it. You know? Nor is it the drive that says, well, this is it, here I am, everything's fine. 
it's uh, it's the the absence of that because uh, and with that is the uh, the absent the stopping of the identity drive and this is marvelous because it's from this that actually you know can be something that happens in, in a moment and we maybe go back to maybe when we even wasn't being that really fully with it you know is awakening moments and uh, very often in that you start to get that sense of it and then you start to know it oh yeah oh yeah I did that and that's how it was yeah I did that that made it work didn't it I'll do that again that'll make it work and it doesn't <laughs> I'll do that letting go bit that'll make it work yeah now how to do the old letting go that's it right let go Oh, nothing happened, <laughs> you know, because it's now it's the it's coming from the wrong place, isn't it? It's not let, nothing. Letting go is fine, but when you know it and you do it, it's not let. It's no longer coming from the same place. When it comes from the unknown, when something you go, oh, uh, wow, oh, 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 well, look at that. <laughs> Yeah. And so you get a sense of, uh, because of course it's not an idea, but if you feel the energy of it, it's the pla- that particular place where the, the energy of, of movement transforms itself or transmutes itself into the energy of presence. Hmm. Here we go. Mm-hmm.